Welcome to Between the Sound, a place to share all things music, art, conversation, inspirations, aspirations, friendships, and where we get into it. So let's get into it. CEO of Carnival Village Trust, director of the Tabernacle W11 community and entertainment venue, and manager of award-winning still pan band Mangrove. Raised in West London and a Ladbroke Grove local, he entered the world of carnival early on, playing steel pan and later drums, performing and touring with the likes of Finlay Quay, Hinder Hicks and Simon Webb. Community and carnival driven led him into pivotal roles directing annual Notting Hill carnivals, steel pan bands and a growing list of musical projects and events. Ever evolving and uniting the community through music and creativity, today we welcome the brilliant and talented soul that is Matthew Phillip. Hello. You are one busy man, man. Yeah, quite. <laughs> Glad you, you made some time. I appreciate it. Cool. All good. So let's get into it. What age did you start getting involved in music in general? Um, music. When I was five, my dad bought me a drum kit for Christmas, which I've got vague memories of it, but I've been told it only lasted that kind of Christmas season before I mashed it up. Um, so I probably had that for a week or so um, before it got broken and, and my parents decided it was too noisy. Um, so about five years old, that's probably my first experience, but I've always loved music um, growing up, it's kind of part of my life. I began playing in primary school, probably about seven or eight, I used to play the cello. All right. And, and a bit of violin. Okay. Um, that was in primary school. And then when I went to secondary school, um, almost at the same time, um, I went to North, North West Minister Secondary School and I started to learn pan with a guy called Zach Herbert. Mm-hmm. You had a band called Paddington Youth and a lot of people learned under him. And at the same time, I um, started playing with Mangrove Youth Steel Band. 11 was when I really got into it and it's kind of been non-stop ever since then. So would you say drums or steel pan took over more or were they equal? Well, drums was a was really something that came probably a lot later. I was playing just pan for many years. I'd always jump on the drum kit whenever I could, but I started playing drums properly, probably aged around 21, 22. And it was only because the drummer at the time for Mangrove, because um, I started managing the band then, kind of demanded to be paid before gigs. So I just I just laughed and said, it's okay, I'll do it. Quickly from then, like within weeks of that, I was, you know, I, I was doing the band gigs and somebody saw me at a, at a gig with the band. And then the next week I was playing in the Calypso tent in the Yar Center. Wow. You know, I've got I got some really nice opportunities early on and it kind of just encouraged me to keep going. Wait, so you were managing it at 21, 22? Yes, yeah, so at age 21, I took over managing Mangrove Steel Band. Wow. Did you feel ready to do that? 
I kind of it kind of happened by accident, you know. So my dad retired and said he wasn't doing the band anymore. And then I was amongst a group of about 10 people that had a meeting and decided we were going to continue. And kind of everybody else in the room gave themselves a role. This one was the manager, this one was the treasurer, this one was going to do this and that. And then I think I was the only one that didn't have a role. <laughs> this was in kind of January, but by August none of them were around so it was just left me by myself and I, I was determined that the band was going to come out for that panorama and carnival yeah. and I just kind of got on with it really yeah so it happened by accident and yeah I've been doing it ever since were you a fairly confident kid to be able to take on things like that no no I've always been very shy really and kind of quiet but I yeah I just feel like I just I knew what needed to be done and I just got on with it yeah so who would you say was your biggest influence starting out in, in life? Your dad? Yeah, obviously my dad, because he, you know, he brought me around the carnival community, etc. I was doing a lot of that. Um, I was exposed to carnival at a very young age and the steel pan. Um, visited Trinidad a number of times when I was very young. Yeah, between that and my mum's probably probably the biggest influence in my life. You know, just seeing what she did, bringing us up as, as children. Um, she was yeah. a single parent um, and she did amazing things for us. I, got, I was exposed to a lot of variety of things as a youngster, you know, like, going to the theatre, you know, going places where a lot of my friends were just hanging out on the streets outside our house. And, you know, I'd, you know, I'd be taken off to different towns in and around England. She'd take us on holiday to Portugal and, you know, Ireland, where, where she was from. So I was wow. exposed to a lot of different influences from a young age. And you grew up in Labrogrove? Yeah, well, when I was first born, we lived in Wembley. Um, then we moved to um, North Pole Road, which is just down near Latimer Road. And then um, my dad, my parents split up. My dad had a flat on All Saints Road. Um, and me and my mum and my two sisters, we moved to Shepherd's Bush. And then about 85, my mum moved back to Latimer Road. And then I've been living in Labrook Grove since I was about 20. Yeah. In and around Paris Square. Okay. What was your dad's influence, Carnival? He was a co-founder of um, the Mangrove Steel Band and Mask Band, um, alongside Frank Critchlow and, and many other people that contributed and helped him. And Mangrove, in its early days, was a, you know, was a very central focal point of Carnival and the Carnival community. A lot of the bands would parade and go down All Saints Road as part of the parade. This was before there was a kind of fixed route for Carnival. You know, you'd bands and people just more or less go where they liked mm. until what time they liked. Um, a lot's changed since then. Yeah. And, yeah. So Tim and the whole mangrove community had a big influence on Carnival. Yeah. And what's your dad's outlook on Carnival? Is it similar to yours? What it means? Um, no, we. I think we differ on quite a few different things in terms of approach and how things can be done. He's a lot more radical, and you know. And I think there's different ways to approach things. Okay. When were you first at Carnival? How old were you? Um, my dad tells me I was two, being pushed in a buggy. <laughs> 1974. So that's give my age away. <laughs> You're a lifer. <laughs> so. How would yeah. you say carnivals changed from when you remember it, where there was no particular route, to what it is now? Yeah, it's changed a lot. Um, a lot of things have changed. And I think health and safety um, issues and um, concerns have, have played a big part in the changes of carnival. 
so it's evolved. Um, but I think that carnival's always evolved. I, I don't think any one or two throughout its 50 plus year history, carnival's constantly evolving, whether that's from an organisational point of view or even artistically. Um, yeah. I think that's the beauty of carnival, it's, its resilience and its, in its ability to adapt. Um, I think the fact that there isn't a, an overall theme for Carnival or a creative director is a good thing. And that's what's helped it to grow organically. So every single steel band, mass designer, sound system, they curate and design and pick their own themes, music, etc. And I think that makes Carnival, you know, the event it is today. Mm. Do you love it as much now as you did then? I'd, I'd have to say I, it's it's different now. I don't get to enjoy it. Certainly, the last four years organising it. Um, but when I look back at it, it's you know of the events that we've done. You know, I'm proud of the achievements and the the times when I actually get out on the footprint of Carnival. It's just amazing to see so many people from different walks of life enjoying themselves and smiling. Yeah. So speaking of other influences, who would you say influenced you music-wise? Musically, I, I mean, there's a lot of music I love, but in, in terms of musicians, um, Richard Bailey, um, he's been a massive influence on me. He's taught me a lot of things mm. in terms of, you know, not just playing the drums, just music. You know, when he first used to teach me, he never ever kind of, you know, I was like, oh, I want to learn fills, I want to be able to do this. He never taught me anything like that. What he did was give me the tools to express what I want to do. And I didn't realise at the time. So I, before I'd play drums and I'd hear something and not be able to execute it. And he would give me certain exercises or rhythms to learn. And it was years later realising that I'm, I'm, I hear something when playing with people and I just play it. And then realising that it was the tools and information that he'd given me enabled me to do that. So yeah. rather than him teach me bills or things that he would do he gave me the tools to do what I want to do um and that's for me that's been invaluable he's, yeah. he's definitely the biggest um um musical influence that I've ever had I think wow you know, been others, but nobody as much as him and he gave me the tools to be able to to, to play in terms of the, the you know the skills and what I want to play so you know like I said I, I wanted to learn the fills that like I'd hear him do a fill whether it was with a steel band in Trinidad or one of the bands that he'd play with in the UK whoever and you know not realizing that's not a way to that's not the way to go you need to have your own tools to be able to create your own thing and that's yeah. what he did for me yeah wow you couldn't get better than that for me in terms of drumming I've never come across you know there's a lot of other drummers that I like but I think Richard's ability to play any musical genre, as if that's all he played, is it's not equal. There's nobody else that can do that. Yes. Whether it's jazz, calypso, funk, reggae, Latin music, you know, he does it. And he doesn't do a watered-down version. He does the authentic version of it. Yes, yes. I mean, we're pretty lucky to be in his company, his friends, and playing as well. Yes. As a singer, I can only say, like, not many drummers who appreciate the dynamics when you have a singer in a band as well. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. He's he's a musician. He's not a drummer. You know, yeah. In the, you know, some people are just drummers, um, but he's a true musician. Totally. So soca music is normally affiliated with um, still bands. Are there any other types of music that you were into more so or as much? I mean, I I enjoy and like all kinds of music. Obviously, when I was young, disco music was a big thing. Um, rap and hip hop. I really like Latin music, um, okay. Afro-Cuban, 
um, reggae has been the big influence of me at both listening to the music and playing it. Yeah, it's just lots of different music. I even, I like classical music, which I learned to play as a young child with, with the steel band. We used to have steel band festivals where we'd play classical pieces. Really? Oh, wow. Nice. So you've been involved in putting on little ensembles, right? Particularly if you started running the steel band at 21, 22. Yeah. Tell us a bit about Engine Room in particular and the Sunday jazz gigs. The Engine Room idea was, it came about as I wanted to do something slightly different to just the steel band. So I wanted to create a band that would back individual pan players. I think it started back in like 2003 or four. Mm-hmm. And we started out with three or four people. Um, and we do something down in the, the foyer of Tabernacle, which which looked very different then. Um, and so the idea was just to support and encourage those individual pan players. And also it presented an opportunity to play different types of music. Yeah, just be a bit more creative. And kind of it's kind of been going for almost 20 years. We haven't done so much recently, um, but it grew to we do a monthly thing called um, Dinner Jazz, where we'd have two or three different hand players come along and be part of the show with the band and also a singer and a host. Mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, Cutty, who we all know, um, the great Cutty Williams. Mm. Um, yeah, we had some really good events and the the Engine Room Collective is a mixture of, you know, it's lots of different musicians who have been part of it. There's like a core of it. You know, there's myself who play drums, Richard would play drums sometimes, um, Michael Bailey, main bass player. We had a guy called Quadjo who would play sometimes. Um, Curtis Ruiz would play bass sometimes. In terms of keys, we've had um, Kirish Houston used to play keys and or guitar, whatever he felt like on the day. Um, Felix Ruiz, Ray Carlos has been part of it on saxophone for a long time. Um, the late Bobby Stignat used to play percussion with us. Um, nice. Bobby was another big influence in, in my drumming playing, actually, although he never played drums. Um, he watched me at a, at, a, at a gig in Tabernacle playing with Mangrove, and we were doing two sets. So he watched the first set, and in the middle of, in the break, he said, do you mind if I just go to your drum kit and just change it and adjust it and I was like what? I like about that. Anyway I allowed him to do it and my drum kit setup has not been the same since. I think my earlier drum kit setup I would just basically copy how Richard would have his drum kit but one person's setup is not always right for somebody else and Bobby adjusted my kit and brought things in closer proximity to how my stance was and how I was playing and I haven't changed the setup ever since yeah and he just studied it and yeah I mean he, he taught me a lot about um Afro-Cuban music as well so like the, the different claves and things like that I've got I got that from uh, Bobby Stignat wow that's so fascinating he's a legend he was a legend he still is yeah so did you have any uh special guests on those gigs any international acts that joined in at all or Oh, yeah. I mean, in terms of pan players, we had all of the uh, the good UK pan players. Internationally, we had Andy Norell, um, Liam T came and played. Um, in terms of singers, Hinder Hicks came and performed with us. We had a saxophone player join us called Yolanda Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, Orphie Robinson came on Vibes. I can't remember. There's been a lot. I'd have to like sit and think about that for a while. We've had a lot of guests. Um, both yeah. instrumentalists and vocalists uh, part of the engine collective 
do you like that that setup where you can interchange and and have different people come in presumably that would have changed the vibe of the the night and the music yeah it's a it's it's nice because there's so many you know i mean you know you're part of it there's a there's a, a group of friends and musicians that kind of know each other and you know it's just comfortable playing and and if there's one changed out it's actually still still the same family really but <laughs> um, so it's it's all really comfortable yeah yeah that's a pretty special thing to be able to call you know musicians family so did you ever get into the pop world playing music on sessions or yeah funnily enough somebody just walked into the office there's a guy called Finley Quay and I've played for many years <laughs> and drums with him visited a lot of countries um, hey I must have sensed you were there <laughs> yeah <laughs> what a question yeah so you know we've done a lot of gigs in and around the UK internationally South Africa places like Dubai yeah lots of places I can't even remember all of them to be honest yeah 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 um, yeah, I've played with a guy called Simon Webb, um, some other pop acts I'm not so proud of. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you have yeah. a standout um, gig moment for any reason? I don't know, you know, but I've certainly got a lot of stories of gigging and stuff, but I'm going to save them for my grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> and the autobiography that will come out one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So how did getting involved with Carnival Village come about? So Carnival Village is, is a was a partnership that was started by four carnival arts organisations um, about 16 years ago. Mangrove is one of the partners and we contributed to the fundraising of it and the business planning of it. And the opportunity came up to take over the Tabernacle, which the trust that was running at the time went into insolvency. So we bid for the Tabernacle, uh, were successful. Um, we also have another building, the Yar Centre, and in 2013, the organisation was running into some difficulties um, in terms of previous management. And I was asked to um, take over the running of the Tabernacle um, in particular for a period of six months. That was eight or nine years ago. I'm still here. And then in 2018, the opportunity came up to take over the running of Nottingham Carnival, which for me was an easy one in terms of uh, I felt like I'd known it I've been part of all the different elements of carnival all of my life and then um, in terms of carnival village um, last year I was made the chief executive of the whole trust um, right. so it's, it's all kind of one organization anyway the tabernacle carnival the yard center carnival village trust um, so I'm looking forward to the future we've we've kind of repurposed the yard center to support um the artists in terms of the designers and stuff, giving them space with equipment and resources to be creative. Um, right. So yeah, looking forward to the future. Any like major hurdles in running the Tabernacle from the transition before you to, to you running it? Not really, I just, basically my first task was kind of cut out a lot of dead weight and in terms of and I don't mean staffing-wise, we never lost any staff. In fact, the staffing levels grew, but just unnecessary expenses um, and just making sure that we, you know, we watched the pennies so that the pounds could look after themselves, as they say. Mm, mm. And what about Notting Hill Carnival? Are there any instrumental changes that you've implemented since you've gotten involved? The first thing is challenging the media narrative around Carnival and how they portray it. Um, I think we've done a, a lot of work there's still work to be done, but certainly that has changed. 
so much so that in 2019 you had the media calling out each other into why they report it in that way because statistically Notting Hill Carnival is one of the safest events in the country you can compare it to any other festival and I won't throw any other festival under the bus and call them out but Carnival in fact if you scale up the numbers that we have it's a lot safer than than any other event really I, I can't think of an event that's safer what was your thoughts on them trying to move it to Hyde Park that's just a weak news story. No one actually really wants to move it to Hyde Park. You know, I've had early conversations with the police and that, you know, can you imagine it'd be a nightmare trying to manage one or two million people in a park? The yeah. natural way that the streets of Notting Hill break up and disperse people, in fact, makes it easier to manage those crowds. Yeah, uh, and it wouldn't be Notting Hill Carnival if it wasn't in Notting Hill, right? Yeah, and carnival is about freedom and, you know, that the, that thing of people taking to the streets for two days, you know, is a very important one. If yeah. it was in a park, it would just be like any other festival. Have you got a uh, particular favourite carnival? Any particular year? The ones before I was organising it. <laughs> <laughs> any of those ones. All of the above. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how would you like to see Carnival evolve going forward? Um, I'd like to see the artistry and the creativity of it grow. But in order to that, to, for that to happen, it's all part of the plan that we implemented four years ago. We changed the media narrative, so therefore more brands and we can get more commercial partners, not to commercialise it and make it look like an advertising event, but for them to support the bands and the artists with their creativity. So that, you know, I'd like to see that flourish, but there's a step back we have to go. We need to resource those people. Um, Carnival is made up with, you know, probably millions of volunteer hours. A lot of time and effort goes into Carnival and that needs to be supported. So firstly, finding resources that we can give the bands and artists, et cetera, to come to do it and then focus on how, well, not even focus. If those people have more resources than they've had before, the creativity is just going to handle itself. Yeah. Do you constantly think of new ideas to improve things or are you part of a team where you just throw things out there and they get collectively decided? Well, it's both, you know, it's, you know, and I, I, I don't lead like a dictator. We've, you know, we've got, we've got a team here in the office and we always, you know, there's no artistic director of Carnival um, and everybody's ideas are valid. So I say there's like 150 artistic directors, each steel band leader, mask band designer, sound system operator, artist. They're the artistic curators of Notting Hill Carnival. And not just from an artistic side, you know, you know anything we do, including the decision, the sad decisions we've had to make for two years now, not being on the streets. Those decisions weren't made in isolation. They were done through talking to all of the bands and people that actually put on Carnival. Because our office doesn't put on Carnival in isolation. It's put on with literally over 150 other smaller organisations. Right. So speaking of that, I mean, how did lockdown, first of all, serve you? You know, was it a welcome release from running things because your mind is constantly on the go? That first period was like, what? Because... If you'd asked me in 2019, is there anything, anything that could stop Carnival? And I would say no. But one thing the last two years has taught me is, you know what? Like five year planning, like that's got to go out the window for now. You never know what's coming around the corner. Yeah. The only kind of comfort I took in the sad decision we had to make last year in terms of cancelling was the whole world was cancelled. 
Yeah. I think it would have been a very different thing if it was just not in the carnival not happening, but nothing else was happening. Yeah. And even this year, yes, there are events happening, but you can't compare 10,000 people or 60,000 people to 2 million people on the streets. Yeah, 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 so yeah. We're, we're going to focus now on the recovery of carnival to come back on the streets for 2022. Yes, gosh, he's hoping, yeah, better do. I mean, speaking yeah. of planning ahead, after the success of last year's online carnival, you'd call it a success, right? Because it was the first time yeah. going online. Yeah, absolutely. We've um, we've been contacted by other people around the world on how we did it. We're up for an award for that as in terms of one of the best virtual um, supplementary programs that was out there. Um, yeah, and, and the lessons learned are going to help us for the future. So this year is going to be a bit of a hybrid. We've got some real life events that we're filming that will be part of that broadcast. And it's all to the aim of 2022, putting cameras and audio equipment to record carnival and panorama professionally it's never been done before you only you normally only see news clips um maybe a dancing policeman or or if there's any issues but we want to show the artistry of carnival in a professional way wow that's brilliant that's mad that that hasn't been done before never been done is there a reason um well one thing i've learned is filming and doing things is a very expensive thing to do it's not cheap to do it properly you know anyone can buy a, a handy cam or do it on a phone but if you look at what we did last year what we're doing this year it's broadcast quality it's not and that doesn't come cheap it takes a lot right. of manpower it takes a lot of resources and equipment right well so then there's good things that have come out of lockdown in terms of changing the the landscape yeah. going forward i think for everyone, I think everyone has been fast forwarded. You know, who would have thought you know, I'd be doing an interview on Zoom or even most meetings on Zoom? But I think everybody has been kind of fast forwarded five or 10 years in, in the use of technologies through yeah. what's happened with the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And the smart thing is to embrace it and move forward. Exactly. So how do you balance um, home and work? It's very difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult, yeah. It's, um, I don't get much time. It's um, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I've got the best wife in the world. You must do. Yeah, I mean, you know all about teamwork. Clearly, the way you run Tabernacle, the Notting Hill. So presumably, I would imagine it's all about teamwork at home as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I'd say my wife's the boss. To be honest. <laughs> Do you know what? There's a saying, and and I and I think about I think about my my grandmother, my mother, my mother-in-law who's sadly not with us, um, my wife, even my daughter who's grown into an amazing woman. I, I don't think you know women are such an important part of life and the world. And years ago, it's slowly changing. They never got the recognition, you know. But I've got the utmost respect for women. There's no. You know, we couldn't do anything without women. There's, there's something special about women. I'm yeah, so glad you recognise that. Well, anyone who doesn't is stupid or <laughs> ignorant or, or, or they will learn. And let's just hope they don't learn too late. Yeah. Amen. Yes, to that. Briefly tell us about Tabernacle Tuesdays, how that came about and how it is now. Tabernacle Tuesdays started... Um, it was something we were talking about for years. Myself, Michael Bailey, we would always have these conversations about just doing something. And then 
one day, I'm trying to remember how long it was, probably about, might be four years ago now, and we was like, let's just do it, you know, there's no money, but you know what, let's just do it and make it happen, and we did it probably for six months, it was probably just myself, Michael, two or three other musicians, and two people sitting in Tabernacle listening to us. I think I was you know? one of them. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it, it, it gradually grew, you know, and I think especially it was it was becoming really big before lockdown. But as soon as we came out of lockdown from day one, the Tabernacle's been packed every Tuesday night. And we've been blessed with some amazing musicians and singers that come down. More and more musicians are coming down as well. It's almost becoming like I used to go to China White to see Michael and Richard and all of them. And you go there and behind the drum kit, there'd be like 10 drummers. Over on that side, there's X amount of, it's probably, you know, the club probably had more musicians than anything else. And Tabernacle Tuesdays is becoming that, you know, a lot of musicians, singers, yeah. as well as just the community that are, are blessed and treated to some really high quality music for free. Yeah. Know? Where would you like to see that go? Remain as it is or develop? Um, I think the if it develops, it becomes work. I think the reason how it's kind of worked at the moment is just friends coming together and having fun. You know, as professional musicians, you go and you do gigs and you're told what to play. You don't have a choice. But this is very much us deciding what we want to do, whether it's instrumental, vocals, that freedom. The way it turns into a gig or something. Now, don't get me wrong, if we'd all like to, to get paid and go off and do other things, and we would. I think, yeah, I think a possible future avenue for it is to do a, to do a record and also go and do other events. But yeah. the, the band and the musicians, as you know, are versatile enough to do many different types. So it's a, it's a difficult one to, to pigeonhole. What kind of band is it? What music do you play? Um, you can play anything. Yeah, yeah. So let it evolve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just briefly, what is Panorama for people that don't know? Uh, Panorama is a national steel band competition um, where the top steel bands in the UK compete for the title of steel band champions of the UK. So it's happening on the 28th of August in Kensal Road on, at Horniman's Pleasance. Um, and yeah, and it's the, the biggest and best bands of the UK competing for the title of champions. And did you have any hurdles keeping that going this year? Was it was it tricky to have that event take place this year? Um, no, we've had to put more safety measures in place. There's less bands, which actually makes it easier for us to manage. But yeah, we're, we're working, adhering to government guidelines and legislation and the event's going to happen on the 28th and I think the community and the bands are really looking forward to it. Yeah, I've heard rehearsals in full swing at Tabernacle and they're sounding awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for Matthew Phillip? I don't know, some rest in September and Mangrove will be doing an album at the end of the year, but it'll be an album with a difference. Um, lots of people have done steel band albums. We're going to do one with lots of friends that I've got in terms of artists and musicians um, with some really big features on it. The plan is to do a, like a double album. So the first album will be all the friends and musicians that I know, the band play a version of one of their songs and, and, and they will sing it and then do a collaboration where we together we write something new and unique for the second album. So I'm hoping to get an, about 10 or 12 friends and guests on it 
and it's a kind of a double album idea. The first one will be tunes that we love from those artists, you know, bringing them back. And then the next one will be some new original material. Wow. I love how your mind is always on to the next step. That's what's needed, you know. I, honestly, I'm, I'm honoured and, and grateful that you've spent time sharing a bit of um, your stories and your mind with, with this podcast. And it leaves me with one question left, which is yeah. the name of the podcast is Between the Sound. What does that phrase conjure up for you right now? Between the Sound, silence. One of the most underestimated thing in music and I would say, if it's not equally or more important than the notes you play, is the space you leave in between. You know, so that's what I think of it, between the sound. That's what actually makes music, is the gaps between the sounds. Um, Perfect. I think something springs to mind that Richard always says, man, just let it groove, man. Just let it groove, all, you know, all these films. No, just, just groove. <laughs> <laughs> True words. Thank yeah. you, Matthew, so much for today. Cool. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Olivia. See ya. Bye. All right, so thanks. Bye.